The pharmaceutical industry is under the spotlight. Whether it's drug pricing, ethical marketing standards, or diversity in clinical trials, innovative and expensive biologics, or slightly less innovative and expensive biosimilars, there's always something to talk about. Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. My guest today is Will Solomon, CEO of the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, the first and only organization for accreditation in the pharmaceutical industry. If you enjoy this episode, please press that like button and subscribe. Will, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you very much, David. Pleasure to be here. Listen, I'd like to hear a little bit about your uh, your background, your upbringing. Or you have any childhood influences that have stuck with you throughout your career? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I grew up actually in the inner city in, in Jersey City, New Jersey. So uh, I actually come from a pretty modest background. My parents immigrated uh, from outside of the U.S. and uh, really always encouraged me into the STEM field. So I uh, really fell in love with science, engineering and math. And uh, that kind of really propelled me to go eventually pursue a, a career or, or, you know, a discipline in terms of science uh, within biochemistry as my major in college. And that really kind of set the stage, you know, eventually long term for what I would do in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, in terms of my influence, I would say my father, my father was a very, very hard worker. Um, he was one of those guys that, you know, those stories that you hear of immigrants that come to the United States, he had no one here. He was the first Solomon actually to come from his country. And, uh, he, when he got here, actually had no place to go. So he spent the night in the JFK airport. <laughs> yeah. So he's one of those stories, uh, you know, with like literally 200 bucks in his pocket, you know, didn't know what he was going to do. And, uh, you know, over the years, he was able to eventually become very successful. And so I think looking at him as a model for hard work and perseverance and really being persistent and consistent in terms of discipline and whatnot, for sure, that made a big influence in my life. So you, you mentioned biochem, uh, I think for your undergraduate, but you went on for a master's and a PhD, same subject or where did you, what did you pursue? Yeah. So I focused actually in two different areas. Uh, I focused a lot on chemistry education as well as kind of the, the traditional biochem chem field. And I was very interested in particular with my PhD program and the interplay between the influence of chemistry, biochemistry sciences in general on the economy. And what that would mean long term for like GDPs of different countries. And interestingly enough, this was back now, you know, over 20 years ago. But when I completed my PhD, my dissertation predicted that there were certain countries in the next 15 to 20 years that would rise in terms of their GDP based on their output of scientific production. And uh, believe it or not, a lot of those uh, predictions came true. China was one of the countries that I predicted back over 20 years ago, India was another one where we saw a big rise. And, and lo and behold, we're seeing that now today where India's had a big increase in their middle class. They have a lot of output and production of scientific information and papers. And China, of course, was seeing that as well, especially post 9-11. It used to be back in the day that a lot of people that pursued a PhD from China would stay in the U.S. if they studied in the U.S. But post 9-11, we saw a shift and a lot of them actually went back to their home countries. And so the scientific output and production really benefited the economies there in China versus in the U.S. And part of that, too, was some of the changes in immigration policies probably in the last 10 years. But that was kind of, you know, what I focused on. And it was very always very appealing to me, this intersection between business and science and education. And I think this is, you know, kind of the genesis for eventually what I would 
found with the company ACMA, the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, and building kind of competency standards for the life sciences. Well, not to get off track, but I think that, you know, 9-11, as big of an impact as it had sort of, you know, directly, the indirect impact and uh, sort of what we've done to ourselves over that time, I think in some ways has been a lot more profound and, uh, and negative. And I think, uh, you know, immigration is uh, exhibit A uh, right. for that. So if you think about, uh, it's pretty clear people wanted to stay and, you know, have their scientific output be here. And that has not been uh, the case. And it's, I don't think it's improved since then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people don't realize how many areas within the U.S. and and, and in general abroad have really been impacted uh, by 9-11. I mean, this is just one of the areas, but obviously we all know public policy in general has changed a lot since 9-11. And I think, you know, we we forget how it was, you know, prior to 9-11 in terms of how things were. So definitely had a tremendous impact. And, you know, so for me, that was very interesting to see those shifts and what that meant ultimately for the GDP of these of these different countries. So, now I saw you did a stint early on in your career as a pharma sales rep. Is that how you got your start in pharma? Yeah. So you know, uh, like a lot of good things sometimes in life. Uh, I had a girlfriend who uh, I had met in my early twenties, and uh, she was a, a rep actually at a pharmaceutical company. Um, and uh, I had you know really no clue about the pharmaceutical industry. I was twenty one when I had graduated originally before I pursued my PhD from NYU when I graduated. And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I decided I would actually teach for a little bit. So I was actually a high school teacher. People, a lot of people don't know that I taught high school chemistry and physics early on. And then she introduced me to this idea of, Hey, would you consider being a pharmaceutical sales rep? Again, I had no clue what it was and um, interviewed, you know, fell in love really with the industry and what, what we did in the industry in terms of going out there, building relationships, talking to doctors very fascinating, you know, space. But back then, you know, this is now in the early 2000s, late 90s, being a pharmaceutical sales rep was very different than what it is today. Back then, I would say it was, it was kind of more like the wild, wild west. You could do a lot more with physicians. Unfortunately, a lot of times it was unethical things that, that reps would do or the industry would do in terms of being more lavish in their spending on physicians. And, uh, you know, some was good, some was bad. And I've talked about this before in other podcasts and articles. But clearly, you know, my initial impressions as, as kind of a young guy in the, in the industry was that, wow, you know, the industry has a big impact on physicians and on their prescribing habits. And, you know, at that time, I didn't really maybe understand a lot in terms of the clinical implications of that. But certainly now, you know, after I've, I've got my PhD and 20 years later, you know, we can, of course, see that there's been a lot of issues that have occurred because of the influence the industry has on, on prescribers. So after you were a rep, and then it sounds like you went back to grad school after that, and then did you come back out and were an MSL at that point, medical science liaison, or how did that? Exactly. Yeah, transpire? exactly. That's exactly right. So I, I came back out uh, eventually after I got my PhD and pursued, you know, the area of medical affairs, working as a medical science liaison originally. And um, that at the time, you know, people don't know this and if people listening aren't sure what a medical science liaison is. A medical science liaison, really, I think of them as the the Navy SEALs field force for a pharmaceutical company. They are, so they're out there, they're educating doctors. They don't sell to doctors, right? They educate. And what they're doing really is talking in an in-depth way about the disease state, not only about the company's product that they work for, but maybe other products as well. Many of them will have an MD, a PhD like me, or a pharmacy degree or as a pharmacist. And so they'll go out there and really build these relationships with physicians, most of the time who are thought leaders. But back then, 
when you were a medical science liaison, you actually would be promoted from within sales and you were actually reporting into marketing. So today that's not the case. Today, you know, no one would actually even consider doing that. It would be seen as unethical. So today there's actually a very specific medical affairs function that probably came out in the last 15 to 20 years more formally within most major pharmaceutical companies. But that was, you know, kind of my first stint again in working on the medical side within a pharmaceutical industry. Got it. So then you went from being an MSL, I think, to managing MSLs. Yep. Um, is that right? What was that like? What was that like? So, that, you know, at the time when I first managed MSLs, it was an interesting transition because I was on the team and then I got transitioned to, you know, manage the team that were my colleagues. You know, it's always a tough transition. Yeah. You have to manage your, your former colleagues. Yeah. Um, but it's it was better good. though. It's better though than, uh, than, than the other way around, which is uh, staying behind and being managed by a peer. So, right. I guess so. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> look at, look at it in glass half full. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, so it was, it was a great experience. I mean, I, you know, I would say it was really my first kind of leadership role within the industry. Um, and you know, I was a very successful medical science liaison. That was actually part of it. You know, when they would, uh, uh rank us and, you know, in terms of our performance, I, I consistently got very high rankings in terms of my effectiveness as an MSL. I think that's one of the reasons why they promoted me. And um, working as a manager of MSLs, you know, leading an MSL team at the time, this was at uh, AbbVie. Now, now AbbVie used to be Abbott Pharmaceuticals. Great experience. I learned a lot about, you know, just how to really lead a team and to help them stay motivated, especially because a lot of them were working remotely and how that whole thing, you know, right. comes together. So, you know, very good experience. And then uh, it seems you went from there on to more sort of entrepreneurial and investment oriented uh, activities. Why'd you do that? And what was the first step in that path? Yeah. So, you know, I've always had kind of that entrepreneurial itch. Um, one of the things that was very interesting to me was how analysts, you know, equity analysts, you know, bankers, how they, you know, performed valuations on companies. So I was always interested in that, you know, and how that kind of worked. And so I took a, you know, an investment banking uh, program that I enrolled in, in New York. Um, and I learned a lot about modeling and valuation methods and things like that. Uh, and it was, you know, it was an eye opener for me. Um, and I began to kind of think about, okay, you know, what can I do in terms of like contribute to the industry? And actually my first company that I founded was called U.S. Pharmacy Lab, which was a, a specialty pharmacy that also included compounding. And uh, we we focused on this idea of tailoring to really high end folks uh, with very high end customer service. Uh, as you know, you know, if you've gone into a CVS or a Walgreens, you could stand there for, you know, a half hour. Or you can come back an yeah. hour later. Your medication's not ready. You don't know who your pharmacist is. They don't know you. It's very, you know, impersonal. So I, I felt that there was a good market for providing more personalized service for farm for you know customers on the pharmacy side and also there was a big need for people that needed specialized kinds of medications where you know compounding could be useful so you know that was a very successful business learned a lot about that whole process including the prior authorization process would which later on would impact what I would do at the ACMA and we can talk about that later but uh, that was kind of my first foray if you will you know, in terms of a kind of a, as an in term, as an entrepreneur. So you mentioned the ACMA, so that's the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, something that you you started up. Now, clearly, you've, you've been talking a little bit about um, you know the role for in sales, and then what an MSL does, and how they moved out from under marketing, and sort of the that space and that profession has matured. 
what did you see as, you know, what was the vision? Why, what was there a need for such a council in the first place? Yeah, great question. So one of the positions that I had had um, was building up medical affairs capabilities for a company out in the Silicon Valley area in San Francisco called Viva, which a lot yeah. of people in the industry know, right? It's it's the company that, you know, I would say probably 95% of the industry uh, pharma reps utilize the the Viva CRM system for interacting with physicians. So I was brought in actually by the founders to build up their medical capability. At that time, they really weren't focused on on medical affairs at all. And so I would go out to these pharmaceutical companies that were dealing with a lot of the top 50 pharma companies. And I was shocked to see the lack of consistency and the level of heterogeneity when it came to competencies and skills, a lot of processes that were just really gone awry and that I thought were a compliance nightmare for the companies. And I felt that really medical affairs needed a uniform competency standard to kind of level set the industry. That did not exist. That did not exist. And, and to be honest with you, um, it didn't exist even on the sales side. So we really right. didn't have, until ACMA came along, we didn't have anything. Now we have pharma, as you know, the trade organization, but pharma, the trade organization, their primary role, I would say, is really more advocacy, right? And lobbying work on the Hill. Yeah. They don't really focus on that. We have the pharma code which I think is more of a reaction uh, to concerns about regulation from the industry. So it's a kind of a response of self-regulation. Hey, we're going to regulate. Don't worry. And we have our own code. But that's a that's a voluntary, you know, kind of thing that pharma companies can or cannot do. Most do it. Although we've had it recently after IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, a few companies leave pharma like AbbVie actually. And yeah. so that, that puts a lot of questions in terms of what role they even have anymore in terms of maintaining compliance. So until the ACMA came along, we didn't have anything. And I, and I felt that that was really key, especially given what was happening around that time. If you remember around this time, there was the rumors beginning around the opioid crisis. There was a Pfizer yeah. Neurontin case. There was a few cases where there was a lot of kickbacks, a lot of uh, places where MSLs were being used inappropriately. So there was a lot going on that I felt really necessitated, hey, we need to have standards. You know, this is yeah. the right thing for patients. So what you're talking about, you know, you mentioned before you started as a sales rep and the MSLs used to be what people graduated to from being a rep, but MSL is really not supposed to sell and it's not under marketing. And the, the example you're giving there with, with, with Pfizer was one where they're essentially selling something off label as opposed to a more of an educational role. Is that, is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and look, it's, it's, remember, we actually operate in 80 countries. We have learners in 80 countries at the, at the ACMA. So we we see the uh, big discrepancy, especially ex-US, uh, where I would say till today, you still have uh, pharma biotech companies which utilize medical affairs, MSL professionals in a sales capacity. And I think that really erodes from the integrity of, of the medical affairs profession. So our focus was to protect the integrity of that function. We felt that if you really wanted to provide objective information, one, you've got to be competent. I don't know if you've watched the uh, Hulu series Sicko with Michael yeah. Keaton. So I always point to there's one episode there uh, where in the series where the folks at Purdue, the executives are showing the sales team a graph and the, and the intervals on the graph are not evenly distributed. I don't know if you remember that scene and what they basically do by manipulating the intervals on the X and Y and X axis is change the trajectory of the curve. By changing that curve, it makes it look like oxycodone isn't as addictive, right? If you're a doctor and you look at it quickly, it might appear yeah. that it's not addictive. So, you know, but 
The thing is, if you're a medical affairs MSL professional, when you look at data, you've got to be able to know how to interpret that data properly, how to present it properly. If you're, if you're designing clinical trials, you've got to know how to do that properly. What people don't realize, and this might scare people out there listening to this, is that if you're a doctor, if you're a PhD like me, a pharmacist, we're actually not trained on how to do that. We're not trained. Yeah. So the idea was to build competency standards in a program that we developed, the Board Certified Medical Affairs Specialist Program, or BCMAS. That program is comprised of 20 courses or 20 modules that build on, on those competencies. There's technical, there's other areas as well. But from a technical standpoint, even, you know, I was shocked at the level of just the lack of competence that competency that people yeah. had in those areas. So who have you, uh, you know, had participating? It sounds like, you know, you could see the need for it based on your, your background and uh, with some more extensive experience and training than, than most have. But do people kind of, does it resonate when you talk about this and do people sign up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, like I mentioned, we have learners down 80 countries, you know, thousands of people that are board certified, you know, within a relatively short period of time. Um, yeah, I mean, currently we, the, the ACMA works with about 200 pharmaceutical companies. Um, so we have, you know, oftentimes individuals will enroll. So you can enroll directly online for the board certification program. But we have companies that will come to us and say, you know, I want to board certify two to 300 people at a time. And you can do that as well. And the idea, again, is why do that is to, is to level set, to establish yeah. uniformity within the organization. I always say that everybody's kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. Because, again, if you don't do that, it becomes dangerous. I, I think it's a compliance risk for the companies. So it sounds like something that's well-recognized, a lot of people going through the program. What sort of barriers have you encountered in building this? I would say the biggest thing, like a lot of, you know, new things. Um, I mean, we've been doing this probably for about eight years now, yeah. um, is you have people, right? The old guard, there's the old guard in the industry that's been around for, you know, 20, 30 years. And they're, you know, they feel like, oh, we, you know, we don't need a, a standardization. We don't need, you know, to have a board certification. Having our, our doctorate degree is good enough. And so there's some folks like that who are resistant, who don't want to kind of move things forward. And I think you find that in any industry where you find people that just don't want to adopt new things. But by and large, uh, definitely uh, there's been a, you know, overwhelmingly positive response. People believe that this is really important, really critical to the industry in terms of as really I think of it as a next era uh, and a next stage within the pharmaceutical industry. We need every think about it. Every industry has standards. Right. I always give the example of a hairdresser, you know, who cuts hair. They have to have a license. They have to have standards. If you're a pharmacist and you graduate pharmacy school, you can't go and stand behind a, you know, the counter at a Walgreens or a CVS without having a license, which you have to get by completing an exam and passing. It sets standards. This is the same thing. Right. Medical affairs, MSLs. We have a big impact on clinical trials, on research in this country and abroad. And we really need to make sure that people are held to some type of standard. You mentioned before the Inflation Reduction Act uh, as it related to some tensions with pharma and AbbVie's departure there. You know, do you consider the IRA to be a big deal? And some some would say, well, it's just, you know, affecting a few drugs and a few years from now, but uh, sets a precedent maybe. What's your take on it? I think it's a big deal. I mean, you know, it's really the first time in a long time where the there's been kind of a uh, a requirement now for drug manufacturers to pay the federal government if the prices for single source drugs and biologics under the Medicare Part B 
are, you know, are, and nearly all the covered drugs on the Part D increase faster than the rate of inflation. I think that's a that's a big deal. I also think that some of the effects of IRA are going to favor, for example, biologics over small molecule drug production because of some of the pricing incentives in terms of the protections from from negotiations with Medicare. I also think that it'll potentially increase the uh, use of biosimilars in the market because they're incentivizing providers to prescribe biosimilars, paying them an additional, I think it's a 2% percentage point increase in the average sales price. So I think, yeah, this is, this is going to make a big difference because ultimately, you know, it impacts the bottom line. It could impact innovation for pharmaceutical companies. I know that rare orphan drugs, single rare orphan drug indications are exempt from that. So you might see, again, a shift there. We already know that, and I think it's based on data that I've seen from 2021, over 55% of specialty meds make up the prescriptions in the U.S. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're moving in the direction anyway, and I think it might have an impact, again, on small molecule drug production, on diseases that are kind of more the traditional chronic diseases. Could that impact innovation there? I think it might. Drug pricing is obviously a top of mind topic. And when we talk about prices going up, usually point to the pharmaceutical industry, but they're not the only player in the chain and the drug company is generally not the one that's selling the product you know, directly to the individual for prescription product anyway. What's the role of other players? You know, you hear about PBMs, you see, you know, sometimes hospitals. I know from personal experience uh, with commercial insurance that, you know, I received a bill from a hospital uh, where the drug price was marked up by probably a factor of eight over the list price. And they're also a 340B hospital. So who knows what they, they had paid for it. But, the, right. you know, the pressure is all on the on the drug companies. What's your sense of where the responsibility lies? Yeah. So, you know, of course, I think the PBMs, uh, for the people that don't know out there, the pharmacy benefit managers, so they, they clearly um, are controversial. We know that um, it, oftentimes they might um, incentivize manufacturers to hike up the price so they're covering more expensive drugs so they get greater rebate on the drug manufacturer side. And clearly that's problematic. And that's problematic. I think especially this year, you know, all eyes are on what the PBMs are going to do with biosimilars because this year with Humira, uh, which was the, you know, the largest selling, the biggest selling drug, uh, really, I think in, in, in the history of of, of, of products, um, now is going to have you know almost a dozen biosimilars. What are PBMs going to do? Are they going to cover these biosimilars or not? What is that going to mean long term? So I think definitely the PBMs need to be looked at more carefully. I think back when PBMs first started, it was um, it was probably a greater need for them. I think today, given how things are, um, we need to kind of reexamine the the impact and the and kind of the reach that PBMs have in the industry. You mentioned before uh, some questions about, you know, ethical behavior or lack thereof throughout the world uh, for pharma and MSLs in particular. I understand you have a new site up, reportpharma.org. Uh, what is that site? You know, how do you expect it to be used? How, how is it being used? So it's real simple, right? Um, it, this is basically a web portal where if you're a doctor, nurse, a PA, any any type of healthcare professional, you interact with pharmaceutical reps, you, in, you interact with medical science liaisons, and you know, God forbid something happens that is unethical. They do something wrong. It could be that they presented information in a biased way. It could be a sampling issue. You know, it could be anything. Uh, this is a place, this is a resource for you as a healthcare provider to report that information to the ACMA. 
Um, I think it's really important because right now, again, there's really no accountability. If you think back to the opioid crisis, uh, there was one story that sticks out to me where there was an individual that was at a pharma company that was selling opioids, got fired because they were involved in a kickback scheme. No record of accountability. You know what they just basically did. They got fired from one job, went to the other job. Yeah. And then they started just to, to do the same thing again. So there's no, again, no industry wide accountability. What reportpharma.org does basically is ensure account and accountability. It ensures that pharma companies now need to do something about it. Our job as ACMA, we're going to report this to the company. And, and I'm assuming the company in good faith will have to do something about it. Um, the ACMA, you know, we have uh, contacts at the FDA as well. Um, a matter of fact, one of our recent programs, the bi board certified biologics biosimilars uh, specialist program, BCBBS, we had on our steering committee, people from the FDA, but certainly that I'm sure will play a component as well in terms of reporting any time of any type of bad or unethical behavior. I have a final question for you, which is whether you've had a chance to read any books and anything uh, good uh, that you like, anything that you would recommend. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the people that I, I really love uh, to hear his thoughts and, and read his work is Ray Dalio. And he wrote a book called Principles. It's a great book. He, you know, if people that know uh, the banking world, he's a big hedge fund investment banker guy. Um, and he has a lot of great principles that are not just good for business and entrepreneurship, but in general, I would say within life, you know, in terms of how do you lead a business? How do you lead in general a team? How do you remain disciplined? What are ways that you could, you know, look at certain patterns uh, that you may have run into in your professional life, your personal life, and being able to kind of think about the second, third order consequences of those patterns so that you prevent those mishaps again. So it's actually a great book. would highly recommend it. Great. Well, Will Solomon, CEO of the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs. Thanks for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast and talking about the MSL space and your, your life and all the work that you've done there. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.